0: Last week, I started a brand new series. What a way to start the year, right? Doomsday, How the World Will End. Now, I'm not trying to be sensational with this series. I'm really not. What I'm trying to do is accomplish two very practical purposes. One we sang about. Actually, both the purposes fit what we just sang about a moment ago Ready Yourself. I love that song, by the way. It's a new song introduced. Boy, Kelly Meister just knocks that out of the park, (laughs) leaving that thing up. Wow, I love the song but ready yourself. The beginning of the year is when we tend to, to engage in self-reflection, don't we? We, we, we set New Year's resolutions and that. And so at the beginning of the year, I thought it would be important to remind ourselves not to get too tied down in this life in using all of our time and all of our resources for this life while ignoring preparing for the life to come. See, because life is gonna end one day. Now, the world is going to end one day, but life is going to end for every one of us one day, unless we happen to be here when Jesus comes back. I'm voting for that. How about you? Amen? We're going to talk about that here in a few weeks. But anyhow, it's a great time to remember that life is preparation for eternity. What we're doing here is not just for now. It's for something far greater than that. Now, the second practical purpose is so that we can be informed about how the world will end so that we then can stimulate conversations with non-believers, people who are unchurched, about the end of the world because it's a topic that culture is interested in. We see it in movies. We see it in books. We see it all over the place. Last week I showed you how the History Channel devoted a 10-week series to the possibility of 10 different ways the world might end. They got together the top scientists around the country and around the planet, and they shared 10 ways, and I I reviewed them last week, of how the world might end. So even they understand that life as we know it, the world as we know it, this planet as we know it, is, is very fragile. And any one of these things can bring about The end. Now we know that no matter how it happens, and we're going to learn how it's going to happen, we know that the Bible does tell us that the world will end one day. Peter, in his second letter, that's in the New Testament portion of your Bible, one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, the lead disciple, in fact, wrote, in 2 Peter 3:10 inspired by the holy spirit but the day of the lord will come like a thief the heavens will disappear with a roar this is going to be dramatic the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare in other words the holy spirit inspires peter to warn us that this world is going to end one day now paul speaking to believers, to Christians. In First Thessalonians chapter five, verses four through five says this, but you brothers, and by the use of the term brothers, that's why we know he's speaking to believers. He says, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So you might ask, well, so we, we can know when the world ends? No. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, no one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven know when that's going to happen. Jesus said, I don't even know, nor the Son of Man. He said, only the Father knows about these times. However, the Bible provides some reliable guidance about when the world will end and how the world will end. Now, when we're talking about when the world will end, the key is to keep our eyes on Israel. Israel is the key to when the world will end. Now, I want you to bear with me again today. I'm gonna share some deep things with you scripturally. And so some of you say, boy, I like to dig deep into scripture. Well, today's your day. Now, for those who maybe are new to your journey of faith, hang with me. You're going to understand what I'm talking about. Now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Really pay attention, and I want you to trust me. I, I have a method to my madness, okay, today. I'm, I'm leading you some there, but if I would jump to where we're going to be next week, this week, you would have no context, and it wouldn't make sense to you. So i got to set it up this week, okay? Let's go back to 605 B.C., to Israel, the fall of Jerusalem, by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. He's just had war with Egypt, and he conquered Egypt. He won that battle, and now he's coming back towards what we would know today as Iraq. That's where Babylon was, and on the way, he lays siege to Jerusalem in Judah, and he conquers the city. Now, he's going to actually lay siege to the city three times, 605 B.C., 597 B.C., and 586 B.C. It's not until that last time in 586 B.C. that he's totally going to destroy the city, and he's going to totally destroy Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. This time, he just makes them pay tribute, and he takes with him kind of as hostages some of the nobility, some of the leading people of Israel as captives back to Babylon with him. Now his plan is to indoctrinate them in the culture, the philosophy, the religion, and the government of Babylon and use them then to serve the king back in Palestine, back in Israel. One of the people of the most prominent that goes into this exile in 605 B.C., is an Old Testament who becomes an Old Testament prophet named Daniel. When he actually goes back, he's only about 15 years old. He's a a young teenager. Now, most of us know Daniel by the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And that is part of his life. That is this Daniel, but that comes later. First, he comes back. And Nebuchadnezzar, again, is trying to indoctrinate these Jewish young people into the ways of the Babylonians part of that is prescribing their diet, their academic training, and their physical regimen. Now, the diet that the king prescribes is in violation of the kosher diet that God had prescribed for the people of Israel. Daniel refuses to eat it. And of course, they're not appreciative of his rebellion. But before they take action, Daniel makes a deal and he says, all right, let we Hebrews eat like we're supposed to eat. And then after a, a prescribed period of time, let's see who is healthier. Let's see who's doing better academic. Let's see who is stronger. We Hebrews who are eating our kosher diet or the other captives exiles of Babylon, eating the king's meat. And so they did that, and obviously God blessed the Jewish people for being faithful to their kosher diet. And they were stronger, more intelligent, more athletic, more everything. And so they were allowed to continue their diet. Now, Daniel subsequently becomes kind of in Babylon like Joseph became in Egypt. Remember that Joseph, after a lot of trials, and Daniel has a lot of trials too, ultimately became second in charge of the entire nation of Egypt. He ran Pharaoh's house and business. He ran the country. Well, Daniel is also promoted that position in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar and later under the Persian kings who conquered Babylon. They're elevated for the same reason. Joseph interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh. Daniel interpreted the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. And because they then, Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar, saw that God's favor was on these men. They elevated them in their position. That caused a lot of jealousy in Babylon. Among the other Babylonian rulers, that's where Daniel's and the lion dead story comes from because they talked the king into making a declaration, a proclamation that they built a big statue of Nebuchadnezzar and only for the next 30 days, 60 days, I can't remember exactly what it was. People could only worship that statue. Daniel wouldn't do it. They knew that. And so Daniel was cast in the lion's den. Of course, God prolonged and preserved his life. Okay, so now God is going to use Daniel, not only in Babylon, but he's gonna use Daniel in a very prophetic way. Now, as you look at the Old Testament book of Daniel, understand this. That book in the Old Testament is what the book of the Revelation is in the New Testament. They're both talking about the end of the world. God gives Daniel in the Old Testament revelation. He gives him a vision. He gives him an understanding of how the world's gonna end and what's gonna happen with Israel. In the New Testament, God gives that revelation to John, one of the original 12 disciples, about how it's gonna impact the Gentiles and all the world. So that's the background. Okay, you ready? Now hang with me now. So in Daniel 9, verse 1, Daniel pens this. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to God and pleaded with him in prayer, in petition, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes. All right, let me tell you what's going on. Daniel, being a godly man, remembers that in 586 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and scattered the Jews all over his kingdom, he remembered that Jeremiah the prophet, who was the prophet of God at that time, was told by God and told the people that their exile, their captivity, this desolation that happened to them would last 70 years And then God would return his favor to the nation. Now we're getting towards the end of that 70 years. But Daniel's worried, and here's why he's worried. Because many of his Jewish brethren have assimilated themselves into the Babylonian culture, philosophy, and religion. And he's now fearful that although God said it would last 70 years, he's fearful now that God will extend his judgment on the people. And so he's praying to God that God will keep that promise that he gave Jeremiah. Daniel 9, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy will, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. Now, let me, let me again, kind of set the background. In chapter 8, Gabriel had appeared to Daniel because he had a vision of some goats and rams and stuff. Now, although there was a partial interpretation given in chapter 8, the, Gabriel says, now, I'm going to seal this up now because this is for the way future. This is for the end of the world. And, and so we're not going to worry about it now. But that vision, God had given that vision to, to plant in Daniel's mind that God was beginning to reveal the end of the world to him. Now, Gabriel is going to come back now and he's going to amplify what God is going to do in the nation of Israel. So while he's praying, Gabriel shows up. And Gabriel says, God sent me now to give you additional insight and understanding. So he says this in verse 24, Daniel 9. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, those aren't necessarily in chronological order. Now, let me tell you, this verse, Daniel nine twenty-four is one of the most highly debated verses in the entire Old Testament by scholars, Jewish scholars and, and Christian scholars and, and, and unbelievers. The most liberal, aggressive unbelievers say that the whole book of Daniel is a fabrication, that it's not, it shouldn't be part of the Bible. Jewish scholars interpret it in a more secular way obviously they're not gonna take a Christological approach to it. They're not gonna think Christ had anything to do it, Messiah had anything to do it because they're still waiting for their Messiah. Now, I I could go on and on and on about this, but I don't wanna bore you with that because that's not important where we're going. But what I will tell you is that the only thing that makes sense with the rest of the verse is a Christological approach. In other words, that it's talking about the coming of Messiah, that it's talking about the coming of Christ. Because it says, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy sins to finish transgression, to put an end to sin. Let me ask you, has there been an end to sin? Is sin no longer exist? (laughs) No, we know that, right? We wish it didn't, but it does. It says to atone for wickedness, to bring everlasting righteousness. Has God issued everlasting righteousness into our world? Do we do always do the right thing? No. All right, so he's talking about a future event, talking about the Holy One. In fact goes on to say, know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes. Now, in some of your translation, it says until the Messiah comes, it says there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Now, again, without elaborating because of time, the sevens that the Bible's talking about are periods of seven years. So he says there'll be 77, 70 periods of seven years until all this comes about. He says from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes, until Messiah comes, there'll be 770s and 6270s. So what we're talking about is the future. Jewish history. God is revealing it to him as it's going to relate ultimately to the end of time. So there's seven sevens, 49 years. There's 62 sevens, 434 years. A total of 483 years until what? Until the anointed one comes. Until Messiah comes. Now that's from the issue to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. While they're in exile, Daniel and all the other people, during the 70-year period, there are three proclamations that are given by the ruling kings over the, capti- the captives, over the, over the captivity. The first one is the decree of Cyrus in or 548 BC to rebuild the temple at Jerusalem. Scripture talks about it. Ezra and Haggai talks about it. All of a sudden, God puts in the mind of the king of Persia who has now conquered Babylon, that he wants to rebuild. He says, "I want God has ordained me to rebuild his temple in Jerusalem. This is a pagan king. And so he sends a remnant of these captives back to Jerusalem to start building the temple. Remember we talked about it a few weeks ago when I talked to you about, about Haggai and how they went back and all of a sudden they weren't rebuilding the temple. They were making building their own houses and taking care of themselves and God then kind of cursed them. Well, this is what that decree was, to go back and start building the temple. The second one came under another Persian king, Artaxerxes, to restore worship at the temple that now has been rebuilt, and that's in Ezra chapter 7. The third decree, which is the second decree of Artaxerxes, is to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and Nehemiah. And when is that decree? 445 B.C., So the second decree of Artaxerxes, four five, that's when that clock that Gabriel tells uh, Daniel about starts clicking. Now think about this for a moment. Had Daniel really understood all this, and he didn't, Israel could have been ready for Messiah. He gives the exact timeline. He says it's gonna be 483 years and Messiah is gonna be here. Now think about this. The Magi came to see the newborn baby. Where did the Magi come from? Where did the wise men come from? They came from ancient Babylonia. They were doing the math. They were alert to the times. Remember I talked to you about during our tidbits of Christmas that at that time at the birth of Christ, the whole world, Roman historians were talking about it, was poised and ready for some great leader to come out of Judea. They got it. That's what they were watching for. That's what led them to see the star, to go to where the baby was born. So from 445 B.C. until the anointed one Messiah comes, be 483 years. Using the Jewish lunar calendar of 360 days instead of 365, we arrive at 33 A.D., the exact age of Jesus when he's crucified. In fact, in 1895, Sir Robert Anderson, a gifted Bible scholar and head of Scotland Yard at the time, successfully calculated these 483 years to the exact day of Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, that's disputed. And because of new historical things, but it really doesn't matter. It doesn't have to come to the exact day, Jesus. It does come to the exact time of Jesus's life. So it fulfills that prophecy. Jesus fulfilled that, prophet, that prophecy in 445 BC. Exactly 483 years, Jesus was here. Now, 77, though, so, that's 490 years. Now, wait a minute. We've accounted for 483 years, but it says 77s, 490 years. So what about the final seven years? What about those years? Daniel 9.26 says this. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. Well, did Israel embrace Jesus as their Messiah? Did they? No, what did they do? They crucified him. They killed him. Now, the anointed one came in the prescribed time of Gabriel's prophecy to Daniel, the 483 years. But when he came, Israel cut him off. They crucified him. Unbeknownst to Daniel, after the seven sevens and the 62 sevens, a huge gap occurs in God's history and his relationship with Israel. Jesus talked about it as he was entering Jerusalem. In Luke 19, verse 41 through 44, as he approached Jerusalem, it says, and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, I want you to get this picture in your mind. Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem. And as he's approaching the city and he sees the walls and he sees the activity and he sees the people and all that, he just spontaneously breaks out into weeping, to tears, he's sobbing. Why is he sobbing? Well, he says this, Jesus says that his disciples are with him. And he says, that he projects it at the city walls. He says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring peace... Basically, Jesus is saying this. He's saying, he's weeping. Tears are coming down. Says, if you would only have listened to me. If you would have only embraced me as your Messiah. If you'd only seen all the signs and miracles I performed. If you'd only listened to what I was saying. That's what he's saying. He's crying, he's weeping. He knows they're rejecting him. He goes on to say, but now, It's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not lay one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus' prediction came true in 70 AD when Titus, the Roman general, having had laid siege to the city for a long period of time, finally broke through the city walls and massacred the people of Jerusalem. Every man, every priest, every woman, every boy, every girl, every infant, They had no mercy. They killed them in the most heinous of fashions. They completely destroyed the second temple that was built in Jerusalem. They didn't leave one stone martyred to another stone. Why? Because when they burned the temple, the gold of the temple had seeped into the crevices. And to get at all that gold, they had to literally tear the building apart brick by brick, stone by stone. And Jesus said, you know why that happened to you? You know why? Because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. The time that God had sent Gabriel to Daniel to prescribe precisely. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And "And so all Israel will be saved. What's Paul saying? Here's what he's saying to believers. He's saying this to me and to you. He's saying it to the church. In this case, to the church at Rome. He says, listen, don't you get a condescending attitude toward the Jews. Don't you think you're superior to the Jews? He says, now what's happened is that Israel has experienced a a hardening in what? Part until the full number of the Gentiles come in. He said, and then God's going to return his attention to Israel. See, we are living in the age of the Gentiles now. We are living in the time of the Gentiles. God had Moses speak to the children of Israel in Exodus, way back in the beginning of the Bible Genesis, Exodus. This is after they've come out of Egypt and he's given them the law. He says to Moses in Exodus 19:6, Tell these words to the Israelites, he says. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He says, here's why I brought you out of Egypt. Here's why I have chosen you among all the other nations on planet earth. Not because I love you more, not because you're better people, not because you're so special, because I have a purpose for you. I have a plan for you. You will be my priest. You will be me with flesh on it. You will be a holy nation. You will live by such a unique standard of living and relationship with me, your God, that the whole world is gonna notice it. And your purpose is to draw them through your righteous living and your obedience to me and your love for me. Your purpose is to draw them to me so that they may believe in me too. But what happened? Jesus said, but you've been cut off because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming now look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9 now he's speaking to Gentiles he's speaking to the church in the time of the Gentiles he says but you are a chosen people boy that sounds familiar a royal priesthood huh, that's what he said in Exodus a holy nation again that's what he said in Exodus to the Jews a people belonging to God now look what he says that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. So what has God done? God has transferred the blessing that he had on Israel. God has transferred the purpose that he had with the nation of Israel off of Israel because they've been cut off because they didn't receive the Messiah. And he's now given it to the Gentiles. We are now a holy nation. We are now God's chosen. We are now a holy priesthood, not because he likes us more than the Jews, but now he has given us the opportunity to fulfill their role that they failed to do. We are to be a light in darkness showing people. We are to be Jesus now with flesh on it. So people are drawn to him. We should live such lives that they fall in love with Jesus. But that's not how it's always gonna be there's going to come a time when the time of the Gentiles will be fulfilled and God is going to turn his attention back to Israel. At some point in time, God is going to restart Israel's prophetic clock finishing those final seven years of the 770s. These final seven years will mark the beginning of the end. Not the end, but the beginning of the end. So how can we know when the world's going to end? When these seven years kick up. But wait a minute. How are we going to know when the seven years start? Well, there's two ways, and I'm only going to tell you one of them today. We're going to know those seven years have started because these final seven years will be characterized by suffering and terror and destruction like the world has never seen. Trust me, when they start, no one's gonna miss it. All this stuff, child's play. Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 21, 22, for then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. Why? Because it's gonna be the end of the world. It says, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. John writes in the Revelation, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Revelation 9, 6, during those days men will seek death but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. And all the other scenarios that, that, that scientists put out there, have, people are just gonna die. Well, here, people will want to die during these seven years, but they're not gonna be able to die because their suffering will be prolonged. Let me tell you something. We better be ready for this. We better be ready for these seven years. You say, "Why? why, why what, what will these horrible seven years look like? And, and how can I possibly prepare myself, ready myself for these years? See you next week. See you next week. Let me assure you this. The end of the world is not going to happen between now and next Sunday. I promise you that. I assure you that. Now, what I can't assure you is the end of your world won't happen. I hope to be here next week to share the next part of this message. But I might not be. The world of Tokar may end this this week. And your world may end this week. Not the world, but my world. And because that's true, it's too important for me not to share what I'm going to share with you right now if you don't know what's going to happen to you, not about the end of the world, but for eternity, when your world ends, when you die, what's going to happen to you? Scripture tells us that this isn't the end. This life is not the end of life. It's the end of life in this world. Now, Modern science, as we discovered in our series, Life After Life, supports that idea that there is something on the other side of this life. Now, Scripture says that something is either eternal life with God or eternal separation from God. One is really, really, really good. One is really, 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 really bad. But Scripture always tells us we don't have to worry about it. It's not something we need to lose sleep about. Why? Because God has made provision for every human being not to have to worry about it. That's what Jesus is. That's why Jesus came. God sent Jesus. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will never perish but have everlasting life. It's that simple. Paul wrote it in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised from the dead, you'll be saved. Saved from what? Saved from eternal destruction. John 1.12 says, Yet to as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, speaking about Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans says, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Listen, all you gotta do is trust Jesus. You gotta believe that he's the only way. Jesus himself said it in John 14.6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Will you believe that? If you will confess that before God, and believe it in your heart. God says, I'm going to give you a gift. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith in Jesus that we just talked about. It goes on to say, not of yourself. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. God says, you can't earn it. You can't win it. You can't buy it. You can't do anything except believe me. And if you do that, I'll give you that gift. If you've never received that gift, don't leave this campus in that condition. You can do it right now where you're sitting. You you can just, God, I confess right now with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. There is no plan B. There is no other way. It's Jesus. And I believe that. I accept that. I confess it to you, God. And I believe in my heart, God. Search my heart. I believe that Jesus died on the cross, was buried on the third day, rose again. And I believe because he was willing to do that, that you have given him the authority to forgive my sin. Jesus, be my savior. 1 John five thirteen says, these things are right to you who believe on the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. If all that's new to you and it's a little confusing, before you leave today, stop by the guest services booth or one of our literature racks and pick up one of these little blue books. It says you can be sure. God wants you to be sure about what, where you're going to spend eternity. And this book will walk you through everything God has revealed in Scripture about how you can know heaven will be your home.